I want to thank you all for your commitment to this series on church membership matters. I think this is an important topic, and I think it's something that we need to be unified on. Last week, I emphasized the necessity of church membership for your faith, the need to be in fellowship with a local body of believers. And as I was thinking about that, I used the the terminology of an orphan. And the more I think about orphans, the more I'm reminded of the orphans in London, David Copperfield's orphans, the ones that were hungry, that were starving on the street because they had no food to eat. They had to go from place to place begging for food. And when I think about a person who does not have a church home, I think about an orphan who's going from place to place begging for leftovers. When you skip from church to church, you're getting the leftovers. You are begging for food on the streets for your nourishment as a Christian believer. And this may not always, you may not always feel this way, but this is a reality. When I prepare my sermon in my study, all of you who attend regularly, our members especially, I have you in my mind. I'm praying for you. I'm wondering, I wonder if this would be helpful to so and so. Would such and such really benefit from understanding this a little bit deeper? And so I do, in many ways, figure out, do I need to explain more in this area? And so when I'm cooking, I'm cooking my sermon in order to give you the proper nourishment. Just like when I prepare food for my kids, I say, oh, I know this kid doesn't like broccoli. I know this kid doesn't like celery. So I have to make sure I have a a healthy alternative. Now they have to eat what they're told. But... I try to keep that in mind when I cook the food. And the same thing happens with sermons. So if you are a Christian and you're hopping around from church to church, I ask you, find yourself a church as quickly as you can. Make sure you're careful. Make sure your statement of faith agrees with your person. Their statement of faith agrees with your personal statement of faith. But this is important for your nourishment. This is important for your church growth. And the more that you can invest in a church, the more protection it is for you and benefit it is for the local church. And so we have to be in covenant with a local body of believers. So we saw that Paul had pointed to the reality that we are Christians and are now part of the family. He calls it the household of God, right? And he uses the term the house. Now we've, we've mentioned this before, but that doesn't mean that the building is the church, but the people that are gathered into the building, they need a location to gather. And so we are the people of God. We are the family of God. And so he uses family language. In fact, he uses it again when he talks to Timothy. So go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy. We'll be in chapter 3, and we'll be studying verses 14 through 16. And this is where we're going to see that we have to do, that we have to have Christ's church Christ's way. We've got to do church God's way. And that's what we're going to see in our passage today. So if you are at in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're starting in verse 14. And this is the word of the Lord. I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God, 
which is the church of the living God. I repeated that twice. The pillar and foundation of the truth. And most certainly the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the spirit in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to be the family of God in Sierra Vista that you would have us be. Lord, I pray that each and every member here would grow in the knowledge of you and the love that you have provided. Father, as we study who Christ is and we study the importance of church and church membership, I pray that you would infect our heart with the glorious truth that lies beneath, that we see here what you have brought to us, that this message would be for our flourishing and for our good, and that we would be encouraged today, that we would be lifted up in praise. So Father, I pray that you would guide us and keep us, help me to hide behind your cross and that you would be put forth, help me to decrease so that you can increase. Father, we ask these things in the beautiful name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. So this letter was, along with 2 Timothy and Titus, really gives us the bulk of our instructions when it comes to the church and how the church operates. It's called an epistle, or, a, or in more particular, a pastoral epistle. So it's a letter. Epistle just means letter. And this is a letter from Paul who is getting ready to, to die. He's, he's old. And he's passing this message on to a younger man, um, not probably that much younger than you or I, but he's going to take over the, the difficulties and the intricacies in church. And this is church is in Ephesus. And we'll study a little bit more about Ephesus as we go on. But he emphasizes how the church is to operate. And so like last week, we get information on how the household of God or the family of God, their synonymous, is to function. We essentially see that church matters. When we look at this passage, we see it matters. And so we get the description of the church sandwiched in between our two points here. And so we're going to start in a weird place today. We're going to actually start in verse 15b. So when you see somebody say 15a and 15b, a is the first part of the verse, b is the second part of the verse, just in case you were wondering. So 15b is the second part of verse 15. And I do want you to know something, though. And you do not have to wonder what the foundational purpose of the church is. Because we have a description right here in the text. This is not me making things up. This is not me thinking, oh, I really wish we could be a church like this. It's not me as a pastor or an elder casting a vision about what the church should look like. This is a description of the church of the living God. And so we have a specific description of this church. And it tells us also how we are to act, how we are to conduct ourselves in God's family. And then finally, it tells us what we're supposed to be about. What do we confess? What do we believe? And that's what we're going to see today. So let's go ahead and look at verse 15b. It says this. It says, and we're just going to cut it off in a weird spot. How people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. So he starts off with God's household. 
which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. God, through Paul, describes the church. If God created it, he gets to decide how it's made, doesn't he? And he says that this is a household. It's a family. It's a gathering. The word for church can also be gathering. It's an assembly of God, and it's the, of the living God, and it's a pillar and foundation of truth. When you think about the word family, we get some implications. And I covered this pretty heavy last week, so we're not going to cover it very heavy this week because it's the same thing. The first thing you need to think about when you think about family in this context is that it is eternal. Eternal. Think about the word eternal. That means that we will always be the family of God. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if he has called you out of your darkness and your sin and brought you to newness of life, if you are regenerated is a fancy word we like to use, and you are growing in holiness, you have an eternal family. Some people like to say, I have a forever family. And I think that's a good way to describe it. So you are surrounded by brothers and sisters that you will be with forever, for eternity. That has major implications today because there are some Christians that I do not know if eternity and I would get along too well. I don't know if I would want to spend forever with some people in the flesh. And that's a reality that we experience in the church. And part of the church's job is to bring us together with all of our harsh parts and start to rub up against each other and break off the, the harshness and become more and more like Christ. And the part of the church is to make us more like Christ. I did not know how selfish and self-centered I was until I got married. And I didn't realize that I still hadn't improved until I had children. And I realized I am a selfish person. I want my comfort and my desires many times more than my, my, my wife or than my kids. And that was a process of making me more like Christ, teaching me how to die to myself. If you are a Lone Ranger Christian and you are out there on your own, you don't have to deal with this. And it's a shame. This is not a good thing. You do not grow in Christ-likeness as well as someone connected to the body of Christ. And so it's eternal. The second thing is you have access to the Father and the Son. The closer we get to each other as Christians, the closer we get to God. The closer we get to God, the closer we get to each other. So the, when pe people tell me things like, well, I have a great relationship with the Lord, I just don't get along with anybody else. I really wonder if they're really walking with the Lord. Because the more you become more like Christ, the more you love other people and you sacrifice yourself for their good. And so this is something that we want to think about when, when you hear that the church is the family of God, there are major implications to this. That means that there's some form of hierarchy. That means that there is some order or structure. That means that there is some... Um, some, some welcoming nature to it. Because if you're part of the family, that means we get to be ourselves around you. And we talked last week about the shirt that I, have, I wear that I'm only allowed to wear in the house. I'm not allowed to wear it outside because I'm comfortable in my shirt, but no one else would be comfortable. But my family knows me. And so if you are a Christian, 
you get to be part of this family. And this is important, guys. I don't want to understate it, and I don't want to overstate it. This is very important in understanding what God has created here. Because then we have the second thing. It is the assembly of the living God. The church is not only a family or the household of God. It is an assembly. It is a gathering. It is a bringing together of people. It is the church of the living God. And we're going to break this apart. So let's look at the church or the word for assembly or church. When we see in the Greek that this word means several things and there's several different uh, uses of it, but ultimately it brings out the concept of a gathering together. Ecclesia, the called out ones, is also another term. And what would happen is if there was a major decision to be made in a town, all the, the main decision makers, the household heads, would be called out and they would go and they would gather in a location and make decisions for the community. So let's say Mount Vesuvius is about to explode. All the household heads would run together at the arena and have a conversation. What do we do? How do we evacuate? Should we evacuate? And they would be called out. There would be a herald that would run through and would bring everyone together. Okay, So there is a gathering. There's In his name, church means some assembly required. So church means some assembly required. We have to gather. It's a group of people, a household of the living God, a church of the living God. And then we see in the Old Testament this word living God. Now, this is important. Paul did not just throw in a random adjective, description of who God is. He didn't just throw in a part. He didn't make up some word. He said, oh, that sounds cool. I'm going to tack that on to God. He He's using this intentionally. In the Old Testament, when you say living God, what's the opposite of living? I know it's a hard question. Dead, right? The opposite of living is dead. And what is this in reference to? Well, it's in reference to idols. All these idols that, that human beings have crafted in an attempt to represent God or to know God that they pray to, they sacrifice their children to, they do all these things, it's dead. It is not living. And so God is living. That's a very important aspect. So there's a deadness to idols. But also in the New Testament, it's used often, this living God. And it's used in reference to the concept that God is immortal, that he is eternal, that he is creating an eternal, immortal kingdom for himself. And so when he uses the word living God, we go back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, eternal. He does not have a beginning or an end. He is always. And so what are some implications of assembly? Well, first, it is a gathering together of each of us who are indwelt by God, by His Spirit. So all the various parts are brought together into one whole. When, uh, when I was trying to describe this the other, the other day, I came across this illustration. So, in olden days, people would call the church in the world the church militant, which means that that church is at war. So if you think about on a deployment, you have the invasion of Iraq, you have a demilitarized zone or a border, and you have all the troops set up along that border waiting to cross over to get the green light. They get the green light to go, and they cross over. That is the church militant. 
We are still in the world. We are doing battle against the unholy trinity. The unholy trinity, which is the world, the flesh, and the devil. These, that's the unholy trinity that we do war against. And so each of these outposts, if you will, of the church militant, which those of us who are Christians who are in a local church are out in the battlefield. And we have different fobs. For those of you who have been to Iraq or Afghanistan, know this concept well of what a fob is. And you're a unit, your family unit is assigned to one of these outposts, to a local church. The problem is we have units that are outside the wire that are not connected to any fob. And the reason why we bring people into the outpost is for their safety or your safety and for the good of the fob. Because then we have more ability to actually mobilize and do things. So if you are a Christian, you're harming yourself and you're harming the church if you do not belong to a local body of believers. This is an important concept. We gather together. It's a, a dynamic assembly. Uh, the second thing is that we sing and hear God's Word together. Now, singing God's Word by yourself is a good thing. Reading God's Word by yourself is a good thing. But it's so much better together. If you see a beautiful sunset, do you, uh, do you just sit there and think, man, I really love looking at the colors? Or do you sometimes think, man, I really wish so-and-so was here to see this sunset? Or when you're looking at something that's just amazing, do you take out your phone and take a picture and you share it on social media? Because you want other people to experience what you are experiencing. This is the same idea when it comes to church. It is good to read God's Word by yourself. You need to, actually. It is good to sing the songs that we sing to, in the radio, on the car, as you're driving. These are all good things. But it's so much better to do it together. And I've used this analogy so many times, it's probably getting old. But when I sit next to someone who is a recovering alcoholic, who is singing about how Christ saved his soul, or I'm sitting next to a, a divorcee or a widow, and I hear them singing that Christ is their only hope, that encourages my faith. And I think it encourages yours as well. So when we sing these songs, these words that are true, and we do it together, is so much more important than doing it by ourselves. We have to be assembled. One key element to being part of God's family is that you show up. That's it. That you show up. That you come to the family reunion. Our Sunday worship should be like this. This is why Scripture is so adamant that we should meet together. This is from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. It says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. I think we can say that we see the day approaching, the day of the return of the Lord. We see it coming. We see our world falling apart at the seams. Why is it that we have neglected so much the assembly of the, of, the, of the body of believers, the household of faith. We need to gather together. And our third point, or our third aspect 
of our description is that it is the pillar and foundation of truth. Now, this is a very descriptive phase. Maybe in your Bible you might have buttress and pillar or pillar and buttress. There's different words used. But essentially what it's talking about is a foundation and something that holds something up. Okay? And Paul probably has something in mind. So he's writing to Timothy who is in Ephesus. And what do we know about Ephesus? If you've read Acts lately, you remember that they had a big temple there, didn't they? A temple to Artemis. And what they did is there was 127 gold-plated marble pillars that were sent to Ephesus to make this temple. And every king that sent one was considered recognized by this divine entity. And so they would have this massive palace with these tall pillars holding up this temple to Artemis. But he's walking by it, or he's thinking through how he walked by it, and he turns this into recognizing the church. What's the pillar's job? Well, it's to stand upright on a foundation and give structure and beauty. Have you ever been to Washington, D.C.? Let's just get a show of hands. Who has been to Washington, D.C.? Have you looked at the architecture of our buildings, especially like the White House and Congress? They have pillars, don't they? And they're made after the same Greco concept in order to inspire awe. They wanted people from other countries who came to visit the United States to see our epic designs and be awed at the vastness of who we are as a country. And so when you think about the church as the pillar and foundation of truth, the pillar upholds the truth. The job of the pillar is to hold something up. And it's also structured with a foundation. There's a building that is set upon the foundation. And so the church is the solid bedrock of truth. It is the pillar that upholds the truth that comes from God. Which means that this gathering of people have an awesome responsibility. You have an awesome responsibility in the economy of the church. You have a job to do. And primarily, it's to uphold and be a foundation of truth. Especially in this world. In this world of, of fake news and fake profiles and fake social medias and bots and, and deep fakes and all these other things, we have to be people of truth. And our goal should always be to lift up the truth. As a Christian, that means that it's the Word of God is the truth. And this is what we need to be holding up to the world. That means that we need to stop buying in to worldly philosophies, to the solution to our problems. That means we don't look for solutions to the problem of evil and sin outside of the Bible. This is where we find our truth. The truth is to form and inform the foundation and the pillars. So we are to operate as a church based on the Word of God and nothing else. We are not to use worldly systems of a CEO-type model pastor to run the church. 
Instead, we're supposed to use this family model that has been given to us. Paul is very um, articulate about this in other aspects, in other passages. But today, know this. The church's job is to be governed by the truth, and then it's to hold it out to the world. And that's what your responsibility as a member is. God's Word is everything to the church. So that means you must be an individual who hears the Word of God. You must have a daily intake of the Word of God. I know some people are dyslexic and they don't like to read necessarily. But guess what? You can listen. Some people say it's hard to listen. Well, you can read. There's all these different ways that we can engage with God's Word today. We have more resources than any other time of history where we have access to God's Word on a regular basis. So you have to hear God's Word regularly and consistently. If you were starving and you got one meal a year, you would not live so long, would you? And that's what we do. We, we tend to only turn to our Bibles when things go bad. Or we only come to church when it's convenient for us. Guess what? Church can be very inconvenient. There are times when I want to sleep in. And then it would be really embarrassing to have no one standing up here uh, talking to you. We have to be consistent. This is important. This is just like when you're working out. You have to be consistent. If you think that you can grow as a Christian and only read God's Word or engage with God's Word once a month, bless your heart, because that's the only thing that's going to benefit you. You need God's Word consistently and daily. The second thing is you have to memorize it. Now, all of a sudden, everybody's brain goes to a screeching halt. Whoa, I'm not memorizing anything. I haven't memorized anything since grade school, and I'm not going to start now. I'm 78 years old. I've done well without memorizing. Or I don't memorize good. Guess what? Our responsibility is to memorize God's Word. As a member, you must be putting God's Word into your mind. So let me give you a quick trick. Write down your verse on a 3x5 card. Read that 3x5 card one time in the morning, two times at lunch, three times at dinner, and do that every day for seven days. How much do you want to bet that you'll have that verse memorized? Nine times out of ten, you'll have it memorized. The problem is we're not consistent. We sit down with our verse one day and spend all day trying to memorize this verse and get discouraged and quit. It's a continual repetition. But the reason you memorize it is to have the truth ready. Because guess what? Your coworker may say, hey, um, I've been thinking about getting a divorce. What do you think I should do? Do you have anything to say to that person? Because God's Word speaks to that. Or perhaps someone says, you know, I'm, I'm just really depressed all the time. What do I do? Where do I turn for hope? If you do not have God's Word memorized, I don't think the person is going to listen too good if you say, hang on, I got it in my phone. Hang on, uh, search Google uh, how to have hope as a Christian. Uh, let me read these five verses really quick. You know, that's not going to do you any good, but if you can turn to that person and say, Jesus Christ is your hope. Let me show you in his word where hope is found. That's going to be have an impact on that person. You want to help change lives. The third thing you should have to do is to study it. And as you study it, you obey it. 
And then you defend it, you live it, and you proclaim it. You share it with other people. This is not a picnic that you keep to yourself. This is something that you take and you share with others. It's a share size bag of Skittles, right? If you just feed yourself, you're going to get sick. But if you share with others, at least they may pretend to like you while you have your share size bag. You share it. So this leads us how to conduct ourselves in God's household. So if we're the pillar of truth, if we are the assembly of the living God, and if we are the household of faith, then we have to conduct ourselves a certain way. In verse 14, Paul says, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. So Paul got hung up in Macedonia. He wasn't able to get to Ephesus in time to help explain these things to Timothy. So he writes this letter. He says, I have, but if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. We got an ought to here. So if we are God's family, we have to conduct ourselves a certain way. And Paul points out that the church belongs to God, doesn't he? He says this church belongs to God. So if it belongs to God, we have to operate a certain way. And he just got done explaining what the deacons are supposed to be like. He got done talking about elders. So he just explained the officers or the leadership, the, uh, the, the family heads of the church, so to speak. He already described how the church is to go. And so then he describes this. So the first thing you got to recognize in conducting yourself as a uh, member of the household of God is that you are to live out who you are in Christ. So what this means, or what this does not mean, is that you are perfect. You do not join God's household as a perfect human being. My children did not come into my household as mature adults. They came as screaming, crying, selfish babies. And as they were fed and as they were taught, they were to grow in some independence and they were to grow in maturity. And same thing when you come to the church. You don't come to the church as an expert in all the things of the Lord. Some of you may, I don't know, but you need to learn some humility there. But some of us come as babies, as squalling babies who make mistakes, who have a disgusting past, who is full of of evil, who sometimes still make mistakes today, who sometimes still sin against other people. That's what the church is for, to help bring you along as a Christian. And so you have to live out this pattern of life. If you are saved by Jesus Christ, then you should be changed. I like how someone said, if I was hit by a bus, I would be changed. If you are hit by Christ, who is much greater than a bus, you should be changed. If Christ has come into your life, you should not live like the world. And we learn to not live like the world by being part of the family of God. Associating with a local church is the next thing that you should do to conduct yourself. And you have to be associated to the church that is devoted to the living God. Not to dead idols. Not to um, other things that distract from the worship of Jesus Christ in the church. And so there's, there's, there's something here that we have to notice. When he says how people ought to conduct themselves, the grammar here points to a divine command. Paul is not saying, hey, you should do this. This is just an option for you. He's saying you must. 
do this. This is a command. And Paul is very careful in some places where he says, this is kind of my opinion, but you shouldn't live like this. And there are other times when he says, you do this. Do it this way now. And that's what he's saying here. You need to conduct yourself as one who belongs to Jesus Christ. It's a divine sanction. So it is important. It is necessary for the Christian to conduct themselves as a member of God's family. If you are not conducting yourself as a member of God's family, you may not belong to the family. You may be disowned, so to speak. Not in a theological, technical term, but you may be disowned in some way. It involves a life change. We already talked about that. I want you to consider a family's character. Not too long ago, a person's name or family name meant a lot, didn't it? Even 50, 60 years ago, your family name had importance. I got caught up in this TV series called, um, it's, it's escaping me now, but it's basically about an English guy who fought in the Revolutionary War on the British side, went back home, and had to redo his um, Poldark. And so this guy Poldark, he had to go home, and his family name was important at the time, but it had it had decreased in value because the mines had started shutting down and his dad had done some, some bad business dealings. And so the family name was in jeopardy. So he went to the bank to get a loan and they said, oh, you're one of them. I can't give you a loan. Can you imagine if you went to the bank today and said, yeah, my last name is uh, Statler. And they're like, oh, wait. Yeah, no, you, don't, you're, you can't have a, a line of credit with us because of your name. And what we see is that our name, our family name means a lot. There's a reputation in many ways. How many teachers in here have had multiple siblings in a family? And they're like, oh no, here come the Johnson family again. Right, they're looking at the roster and they're like, there comes that kid, they're unruly, or whatever it is, your family has a reputation. We as Christians also have a reputation based on how our people live. Based on how you live reflects on Sierra Vista Baptist Church if you are a member here. If you go out into the street and start cussing and living some kind of uh, degenerate lifestyle, you are representing Sierra Vista Baptist Church with your actions. You are representing the households of God. I like how Luther says this. He says, as doctrine is, so also is life. If doctrine is filled with lying, life is hypocritical. In the church, doctrine is pure, and therefore life too, so that the truth of both doctrine and life are preserved. So our living also protects our uh, doctrine. So we all know that becoming a Christian means a change of heart, and you get a family as well. So I want to sum up the application point here is you must live out a growing faith with values and character in community as a disciple of Jesus Christ. That means the church is a protection for you, but you are also a responsible member of the church. The third thing we see, and we'll go quick, is that a it's a confession of God's household. In verse 16, we have this, this interesting hymn. Now, if your Bible did this right, 
there's probably a poetic structure to it and maybe indented a little bit. So if you look at your Bible in verse 16, you should see some words indented, possibly. Some Bibles don't have room, so they don't do it. But this means that this is likely an early hymn from the church. This is something the church used to sing on a regular basis. And so what Paul has done is he has taken this to show a summary of the gospel. And so he brings out this truth, this confession of faith. So we as a church, at the bare minimum, need to believe this. At the bare minimum. So let's go ahead and look at it. First, he says there's this mystery of godliness. When you look at this word mystery of godliness, you have to understand Paul. Paul uses these words as summary statements. So mystery essentially means the hidden plan of salvation that has now been revealed in Jesus Christ. So there was a plan of salvation that most people didn't understand until Jesus Christ came and showed how it worked. That's the mystery. And then he says um, godliness, which is proper living. So what he just said is that proper living is only possible because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You get that? So those of you who want to change something in your life, guess what? There's no secret to changing the sin in your life. It's very simple. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not simplistic, but it is simple. And so you have to understand that change only happens with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what causes change. Now, I want you to understand this because... In our society today, there's this thing called the gospel gap. The gospel gap, G-A-P. Not like the store, not where you buy clothes, but the gospel gap. There's a space. Some people believe that they get saved and then nothing happens until they die and go to heaven. That's a gap. The problem is the gospel is for right living today. The gospel is for now. The gospel is for all time. So when I am tempted to look at pornography or I am tempted to steal a candy bar, I need to use the gospel. I need to say, you know what? I am not going to look at that thing. I will confess my temptation and rely on Jesus Christ to save me. I don't need false hope. I don't need joy in things outside of Christ. That is forbidden to me. Do you, you see how that works? It's not a works-based thing. I'm not going to white-knuckle it and make, it, make myself figure this out on my own. I'm going to confess it to Jesus Christ. I'm going to repent of that sin, and I'm going to ask for forgiveness. And that's how we change, just in a short nutshell. So what Paul is saying is that this is how people live properly in the household of God. So in 16b, we see the first little segment. It says he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit. That's the first little section. It's combined by the concept that Christ is revealed. He is revealed in this part. He is manifested in the flesh. So Jesus Christ came in human form, and then he was vindicated or made righteous, your word may say, um, your translation may say. He was made righteous by the spirit. The Spirit pointed to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Somebody had written that the difference between God and man is very great. And yet, in Christ, we see God's infinite glory joined to our polluted flesh so that the two can become one. 
It's kind of like Romans 1.4, which says, And was appointed to be the powerful Son of God, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. It points out, and we see a Trinitarian formula. I just want to point that out. We see the Trinity in this. We see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working for salvation in human flesh. I don't want to, I can't unpack it today, but that's important to notice. So God the Father sends the Son who in obedience lives and dies, and he is sustained and vindicated by the Holy Spirit. The, sex, the second thing you see is seen by angels preached among nations. Now, something cool I noticed, and I know this is probably very little importance to you, but if you read this, it says he was made, manifested in the flesh. When you think about flesh, what do you think about? The earth, right? Earthly things or uh, material things. Vindicated in the spirit. When you think about the word spirit, what do you think about? Spiritual things, non-material things. Seen by the angels. When you think about angels, what are those? Spiritual. Preached among the nations. When you think about nations, what are nations? Earthly. Believed on in the world, earthly. Taken up in glory, spiritual. So it's kind of a cool little poem here. And what we see in the second part, seen by angels, preached among the nations, is that Christ was witnessed. This is the confession that we make. These two lines point that Christ was witnessed in heaven and on earth, physical and spiritual. The resurrection points to the power of God. This is something that angels celebrate and people have preached to the world and spread to the nations. It's a gospel witness for all people. The third part is Christ received. We see believed on in the world, taken up in glory. These two lines point to Christ being received. In just a few short decades, the gospel of Jesus Christ spread across the Roman Empire, didn't it? It was quick. No other change in history has been like this. This is glorious in and of itself. But we need to recognize that faith in Jesus Christ is the sole hope for the world. We have a high note that we're ending on here in this passage. But what does this imply for the church? This is what the church has to hold to. If you look at this, every aspect of this has been attacked since Christianity has come. Did Jesus Christ actually come in human flesh? The virgin birth. We want to reject that because it's, it's amazing. It's a miracle. The second thing people want to argue is that he did not return in the flesh. It was a spiritual resurrection. But we don't see that in the text. Vindicated in the Spirit, people reject the Trinity all the time. In fact, there are many sects or cults that have rejected the Trinity. Seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Each one of these lines has been attacked throughout history. That means that this is what our church needs to hold on to. We need to hold on to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way of salvation is through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. No nation can save us. We have the 4th of July coming up, and, and we like to celebrate the good news of being part of America, but it pales in comparison to the glory of Jesus Christ because that's who is most important in this world. No politician is going to save us. No economic stimulus plan 
will save us. No, nothing. Not, not your diet, not your physical abilities, not your intellect, not your philosophical uh, complications will be able to save you in this world. And that's what we have to hold on to as a church. If we, if we shift from this as a church, we have lost the gospel and we are a synagogue of Satan. We are no longer a church. So when the church shifts from our one true hope, when we begin to worship something else, maybe it's the pastor, maybe you guys really like me for some weird reason, and you begin to think, oh, this church is only going to be successful if pastor is going to be at my program, or if pastor does this or pastor does that. That's idolatry, friends. And I am a person, and that's why we have elders. And I am one among many elders, one among peers. And that's important because idolatry in the church is rampant. If we think if we could only get the coolest music program, our church will be successful. That's idolatry. If we think that we have to have a light show and a laser parade, that's idolatry. If we do not focus on Jesus Christ in our worship, if our songs are not Christ-honoring, if our words are not Christ-honoring, then we have failed as a church, and we are no longer a church. I just want to emphasize this. That's what you have to become a member of to hold people accountable. If you are not a member of Sierra Vista Baptist Church, you have very little opportunity to make any change in the congregation. You have very little opportunity to make change in the leadership. If the leaders decide one day that instead of doing the Bible, we're going to do Oprah's book club, you will have very little ability to make a change because you will not have a vote. And that's what's important to be a member of a local body to help steer us on the right path. <clears throat> this is a very important implication. So let's go ahead and conclude this. The church is the household of God. It's a family gathering. It's worshiping the living God in truth. And we confess this truth together, and it matters. It matters how we do our family gatherings. It also matters what our family gatherings are about. I want you to consider this week the description of the church, the three things we described. And what does it say about God? I want you to think about what this description of the church says about God. And I want you to consider what it means to be a member of this local family gathering. What commitments are you willing to make or willing to take in order to be a member? Now, as a Baptist, I love food. Everybody knows Baptists love food. We love potlucks, and we like to eat good food. And in fact, when I was a missionary kid, they would host potlucks at almost every single church we visited. So we had 52 supporting churches, and we would visit. We had a year back in the States. How many Sundays are in a year? 52. So every Sunday, we were at a different church. Every Sunday, we had a different potluck. And I remember distinctly coming to this church as a little kid, going downstairs and scoping out the potluck situation because you learn really quick as a Baptist what food you want to eat. And certain people have certain dishes, don't they? Some families are really good with apple pie. Some are good with the green bean casserole. Some have their fried chicken. Everybody has a dish that they bring. And it adds to the flavor of the meal knowing whose dish is what. But what happens when Aunt Petunia passes away and no longer brings her green bean casserole? 
what ends up happening? That flavor is missed. And so we as Christians are all bringing flavor to our worship service. But when you miss for reasons beyond your, your control most of the time, or for reasons in your control, you are missed. Your flavor is missed in our body of believers. And that's why it's important to seek to be consistent, to make this a priority, but also to actually make a commitment to walk with other brothers and sisters in Christ, to join the Lord's army and not to be um, the Taliban running around ununified. So can we do that this week? Can you think about these things this week? What does it take to make a commitment to be a real member of a church? And what does it say about God that he would describe the church in these ways? Can we do that this week? Yes, no? I got some no's in the back, Gary. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the truth, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, there is not one person in here who can be saved by their own ability, through their own strength or their own will. It is only through Christ and Christ alone that we are saved. Father, what a glorious truth. I pray that we will never forget the true atonement that Christ paid on the cross for our sins. Lord, help us as we live our day-to-day -day lives not to forget the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know that there is sin in this, in this church body that, that people are having a hard time breaking free from. I, I get it. I understand. I, I was there not too long ago. Lord, I pray that you would call them to repentance, that their hearts would desire to, be, to repent of their evil and their sinfulness and their wickedness, and they would return to Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would convict hearts and souls today, that you would change lives today, and that you would make us a light to our community. Father, our community is so desperately hurting right now with homelessness, with crime, with drugs, with alcohol, with all the complex PTSD that comes with uh, serving in a wartime scenarios. Father, I pray for our people that we would be lights in a dark place, that we would reach into this, this town called Sierra Vista and that we would transform people by the gospel. Lord, be with us this week. Encourage us. Make your face shine upon us and bless us in your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.